0: Good morning and welcome. Glad to see all of you here. I know uh, you're probably as excited as I am uh, about the block party we have today. I know that you're not as excited as my kids are, though. So um, I'm excited about that opportunity to minister to our community. Hope that you're ready to do that and able to do that and. I think the more opportunities we get, the more opportunities we take, the more the Lord is going to bless this community and bless this church uh, through that ministry. I want us to uh, turn again in our Bibles to Romans chapter 14, I almost said 12, Romans chapter 14. Uh, If this is the first time you're here uh, today, what we normally do, the way we preach, we don't do thematic uh, preaching. We go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, if, you, if this is not your first time here, you might need the reminder that um, this subject will not be broached exhaustively today. Uh, I'm going to give you um, some thoughts on it, but I will not give you every thought on the text today. Uh, so you might walk away thinking, I wish I had a little bit more on judgment and not judging Uh, But you're not going to get that much today on that. You'll get a little bit. So be conscious of that. Understand we're building. This is a small piece of the puzzle to a larger whole. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to, in this marathon of life, we're just trying to see uh, the plan and the steps that God has for us and try to examine those as closely and with as much diligence as we possibly can. What I'd like to do before we get started today is go to the Lord and ask him to bless this time. Holy God, you are gracious and loving and merciful, and you have mercifully brought us here together today. Through your spirit, we expect and hope that you teach us and lead us of the things of Christ. We pray, Father, that we would take what we learn today, we would apply it to our lives and that we would use it to be a beacon and a light to this community, but also a loving and uh, flourishing member of this body of believers, that we would be changed, that our lives would be such an example of Christ, that others would be changed by the lives that we live. Would you help each individual in this congregation to see themselves as a small part of a big whole and that all of our pieces are important and valuable and how we act and how we interact, the way we treat all of our relationships uh, has an effect on the greater whole, the greater good. I pray that we would not just see our lives as our own, but we would see our lives in the aspect of community. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time, bless our fellowship, help our words and our actions honor and glorify your name. Since we know that every word that comes out of our mouth, every idle word will be judged, every action. Lord, I pray that when we give an account of ourselves unto you, that it would be a good account. Lord, we praise you. We love you. We ask that you would bless this time in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the body of Christ walking in love and understanding. And I laid out for you six ways, I think, that Paul mentions, Paul gives us of how the body of Christ walks in love and understanding. I'm going to I'm going to say those to you today as a as a point of reminder. I'm not going to say them slow slowly enough to where you can write them down. So if you didn't get them and need them, you can ask me for them later. But the body of Christ is walking in love and understanding when we receive the weaker brother. When we receive the weaker brother, we understand that there are differences of opinions on matters of conscience. This is not objective truth. This is matters of conscience. We receive the one who is weaker in the faith on that. We do not quarrel over opinions. We debate and we discuss And we try to figure it out for all of us, but we do not quarrel over opinions. We understand that we are God's representative. This is third, but we are not his final authority. God has the final say. And especially on the things that are not uh, objectively uh, spoken of, but they're matters of conscience. God is the final authority. Be convinced in your own mind about what you're doing. Once you've decided all of these things before that, you must be convinced in your own mind. And do those things as unto the Lord. Now, some of us are convinced of the wrong things. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean be convinced and just because you really believe it, that it's okay. It means be convinced of the things that are matters of conscience. Do them as long as they don't permit sin. Pursue holiness over judgment, above judgment. We'll talk about keeping your own nose clean today, again. Live in confidence because you are the Lord's forever, but work as if it can be lost. We equated that to the marital relationship and how even though uh, my my wife is mine and I am hers for forever, uh, we still have an obligation and a responsibility to woo each other, to... Continue to pursue each other as we did when we didn't know for sure that we were each other's. When we didn't have that marriage covenant, that marriage commitment. We have a responsibility to never stop pursuing each other. And even though Christ is ours and we are His because of the work He has done, we have a responsibility to keep pursuing Him in a manner as if those things were not as objectively true. So today we're going to move on in Romans chapter 14 and this section is going to go from Romans chapter 14, 13 to 15, 13. But we're going to look in those verses on building and edifying the church. This text does not, Romans 14 all the way to the middle of 15, does not deal with objectives. It does not deal with absolute truths. It is not the Ten Commandments And it's not other objective commands of God, which honestly are much easier, right? Do not steal. That's pretty straightforward. I shouldn't steal. Do not murder. That's pretty straightforward. I should not murder. But what we find is, is that holiness, that Christ likeness goes deeper than just following a set of objective standards or rules. It goes deeper than just a checklist for your life. And truthfully, with my personality, I'm a checklist type guy. I think I've told y'all this before, but I'll make a checklist because it gives me the satisfaction just to be able to check things off. So if I've even if I'm doing a, a house and I make a checklist, I make a checklist of things that I just completed or things that I know that I'm about to complete or things that I'm completing, I'm in the process of completing, so that I can just have something to check off. And if life were just about a checklist, it would make things easier on me, uh, but it's not. It's a, it goes deeper. Life goes to matters of conscience, that conscience, that are not specifically and objectively um, spoken of in the Bible. So the first part of Romans 14 has given us an example of Christian liberty. And the last part of Romans 14 and part of 15, chapter 15, will teach us how to properly use that Christian liberty for the edification and the building up of the church. That's ultimately what personal holiness is about, right? Personal holiness is obviously about honoring the Lord, but also its major effect is how it influences and impacts the church. So we must be careful to not see our life and our holiness and our the work that we have in becoming like Christ. We must be careful not to see that as just something we do for ourselves or something we do for our Christ and then, for Christ and then something we do for ourselves. We must see that as something that we do also for the good of the church. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what standard do we follow when there is no objective standard. Paul starts by giving us a hint in Romans 12, uh, in Romans, all through Romans, but we look back specifically at Romans 12. He says, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He gives us a hint at what it's like to follow the Lord to to edify and build the church when there's no objective standard to follow. And then Paul says uh, in Romans twelve, he says, "Hate what is evil, and cling to what is good." Again, not an objective standard, but there. I, I think what I'm going to help you do today is help you find out or figure out or understand at least how we can understand and know what is evil, how we can know what to cling to and what to hate. Church, I'm convinced of this, that the only way to know what to do on some of these less objective truths is to keep presenting your body as a living sacrifice on the more objective truths. Keep obeying the Lord and walking in the Spirit of God on the things that we do know are true. Over time, I have learned to be uh, a home improvement guy. Uh, I still would not consider myself a pro or an expert, but people ask me regularly, like, how did you learn to do all of this? And when I tell them, they flip out a little bit. Not my dad, as he tells you over and over again. That, I don't know where, I don't know if, that boy must be the milkman, son. I don't know. I don't know where he got this from. He says that constantly. Okay? It is wrong, but, you know, it keeps going. Uh, So anyway, but here's the point. Here's the point I'm trying to make. When someone says, where did you get these skills? I I say, YouTube. And I'm not lying. There were two reasons I learned to do home improvements. I wanted to impress my future father-in-law, and I didn't want to spend a lot of money paying someone else to do the work that I was going to do. That I could do. And so I started working with my future father-in-law a little bit. And he taught me some things. And then I went on YouTube. I look back now and I think of, like, I'm still a dummy when it comes to these things. But I look back and think of how big of a dummy I was when I first started those things. My brother-in-law still jokes with me because uh, he asked me for a measurement one time. And I said, it's the little mark past the eighth. Because I didn't know what a sixteenth was at the time. What I found is, is that I've gone along, listen, here there is a point to this other than to be silly. What I found is, is that I've, as I've gone along, like right now as I'm doing something, these little fractions and measurements, these little tricks and tips that I do now in everyday life, I learned because I kept pushing forward and developing a skill in these more objective truths. Listen, when I first started, I knew how to lay tile and I knew how to lay uh, other flooring and I knew how to paint. That's what I knew how to do. But I didn't know I wasn't a professional at that. I didn't know the tips and the tricks. And as I messed up over and over again, as I kept pursuing and pushing forward, I learned tips. I learned tricks. I learned more from doing the wrong things than doing the right things. What I found is is that my skills now are more well-rounded. There are some things that like I still remember being a problem, a real problem for me. But now because I kept pushing along and trudging along on the things that I knew how to do, I learned the secrets to the things that I wanted to know how to do. Now hopefully you're tracking with me on that. What I'm saying here as it relates to you is... In the Christian life, we just keep pursuing the things that we know how to do. The things that God has clearly and plainly stated for us. And then over time, what we find is He will teach us through many mistakes, He will teach us through many efforts, lots of failed efforts. All of these things and all of these nuances behind what we want. To know how to do. You know how to get to where you want to be. From where you are. You just do what's right. As much as possible. As much as you possibly can. And eventually God will get you to a place where you're like. I can't believe that I ever struggled with that particular thing. Thing. I can't believe it. Now, you're going to always have struggles. You're going to always have issues. But there will be things that you look back at your life and you're like, I can't believe that that was a struggle. So while we're learning, while we're growing, we need to do the objective truths of God. Follow the objective truths of God. And I guarantee you, I promise you, He will teach you how to handle the matters of conscience. I want us to remember this as we look at how we are building and edifying the church through our Christian liberties. The first, There's one overarching point and then some points I want to use to describe that today. That overarching point is this. Building and edifying the church requires sound judgment. It requires sound judgment. As I mentioned, it takes a certain type of judgment and discernment to properly understand how to use our Christian liberties. Now, I might be telling on myself here, or maybe some of you... But when people first come to our church, they, they typically come t- from a background of being more legalistic. They typically come from a background of setting rules and standards and lists for themselves <coughs> in order to uh, what, do what they think is honoring the Lord. And a lot of times it is. Um, so what usually has to happen is when someone comes to our church, they have to detox from legalism you have to so so the way i preach is all about grace right it's about grace it's about the work of jesus it's not about what you can do not about the goodness in your heart and your life but it's about what jesus has done on the cross through his death burial and resurrection And so as a means of trying to reinforce that, we say, we really hit on, it's not about what you can do. Well, if someone who's created a list their whole lives finds out that it's not about what they can do, there's usually typically two reactions. The first reaction is, they're so grateful to the Lord that it's not about what they can do, that they throw away their list and they give their life to Him and they submit their their life to Him. But the other is, they're so grateful to the Lord that it's not about what they can do, that they go to the opposite end of the scale. And they just do everything. That's called licensure. That's taking advantage of liberties. And so typically, if a legalist comes into our church body, they start out a legalist, they throw away their list, and sometimes they go way on the other side to liberties. And then, hopefully, by the grace of God, they come back somewhere in the middle. They use wise judgment as it pertains to Christian liberties, as opposed to Christian liberty binge, which is not sound. It is not good judgment as it pertains to your personal spiritual life, but it is not good judgment as it pertains to the edification of the church and how we express and use our Christian liberties. Will affect the church. So the hope is that we find ourselves somewhere on the middle of that scale. Not legalistic, not full of liberties, trusting in the Lord with proper judgment on how we use our Christian liberties. But often we don't use or understand our liberties in Christ. That type of judgment, that type of development, it usually happens over time. It's also developed by watching more mature believers who properly use Christian liberties, who protect themselves from abusing freedoms that they have in Christ. So Paul, in the first part of this chapter, wants us to be patient with each other as we're trying to figure out how to use our Christian liberties. And he wants us to be understanding. And he wants us also to use proper judgment as we're trying to decide how we use our Christian liberties. I want to give us three ways that proper judgment, sound judgment, edifies the church. Three ways that it edifies the church and gives us a proper perspective on Christian liberty. One way, excuse me, three ways we can do this. One way we do this is by placing more effort into judging ourselves. Placing more effort into judging ourselves ourselves. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Now, I hinted towards this last week, but we need to, as the Bible says, take the log out of our own eye before we get the speck out of our brothers. Paul says, do not pass judgment any longer. Can I tell you what this does not mean first? This does not mean to stop examining the life of other believers. He does not mean stop speaking truth in those people's lives if you see something in their life that is that might harm them or might harm the body. Now, tolerance might be the most modern virtue. But Christians have always been called to judge in a manner that is right, that is righteous, that is holy, that is good for the building up of that individual And the building up of the church. So, if someone tells you the Bible says don't judge, you can explain it to them. And if you can't convince them, you can say, well, you can be wrong. Because that's not what the Bible means when it says don't judge. Now, here is how we are not to judge we are not to judge in a way that places salvation or condemnation on someone else. We are not to judge in a way that says, there's no way that person is or was a Christian. But also, it's unhealthy at funerals for pastors and others to to absolutely say, this person was the knight in shining armor, this person was the most holy of holies, because there are real people that are left with the truth of that person's lives. So we're not to judge in a way that gives someone salvation in our own minds or by our own words, and we're not to judge in a way that takes that away. We're not to judge the secret intentions of someone's heart because we are suspicious that they might have sinned. We're not to judge the secret intentions of someone's heart. We do not know their heart. God knows their heart. And so we're not to take someone's, uh, someone's ability or someone's goodness or someone's virtue away by judging them based on what we think they might be doing or what we, why we think they might have done something. We are not to judge on appearances only, especially as it pertains to physical appearances, physical things, but also as it pertains to how something might be perceived uh, in the immediate. I will tell you, I I don't know that you know this about me, but I have sort of a abrasive personality. Uh, I'm more like sandpaper than I am, you know, a smooth rock or something like that. Um, There you go. See, that's the only one I'm going to get today. But the point I guess I'm trying to make by that is, is that oftentimes I don't leave the best of first impressions. And so I have to be careful to leave a better first impression. But we also have to be careful with people who have sort of sandpaper personalities, abrasive personalities, not to let the surface, not to let the first impression be the only impression because we are suspicious in our minds about what that person is like. It's not about appearances only. We are also not to judge before all the evidence has been given. It's very important. This is very important because in the age of social media where you can quickly put out your determination of what has happened about something, it is easy. It is easy for us to judge before all evidence is put into place. And once all evidence is is brought forward, once we know the truth, then we can properly make an assessment on something. But I would caution you as a Christian, even when the world is pushing you to make a decision or an assessment on something, to make sure that all evidence has been brought forward before you make a judgment. How are we to judge then? We're to judge a tree by its fruit, the Bible says. Judge a tree by its fruit. If it is explicitly sinful or objectively godly behavior, we can judge a tree by its fruit. If it's explicitly sinful, we can say not that you're any worse of a person than anybody else because we're all uh, sinners, but this is sin. And this shouldn't go on in your life if what you said is true. If you say you're a Christian and the objective of a Christian is to pursue holiness, then you shouldn't continue in sin. That is proper judgment. If someone is objectively following the Lord, you say, this is objectively true and good. This person is objectively following the Lord in this way, even if it seems by the world to be unpalatable. We judge a tree by its fruit. We judge slowly every one of us should be quick to hear and slow to speak slow to make an assessment on something again until all the evidence is out judge slowly we judge by spiritual factors and not worldly factors listen someone might say all the wrong thing all the right things and do all the right things and still not be in the right as it pertains to god because God judges the heart while man looks on the outward appearance. We judge by spiritual factors as well as we can. Now, we can't see into the heart of man. We aren't God, so we can't see all of the spiritual aspects of things. But on the things that we can, we judge by spiritual factors and not worldly factors. He looks good. He's behaving. He's not causing trouble. And yet he could still be condemned To a lifetime of separation from God, or to an eternity of separation from God. Paul here is not saying never judge. He is saying let your judgment be sound and on objective and undeniable truth. An objective and undeniable truth was lacking in our conversation in Romans 14. People were trying to judge over matters of conscience, we saw in the early part of Romans 14 and we read further in Romans 15 that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. we have an obligation to be patient and kind to be considerate to be slow to anger to be slow to judgment this means patiently endure with people while they are learning. Patiently endure with people that while they are working out matters of conscience. And on some level, we patiently endure people while they are also working out with objective truth. If someone has repeated sin in their lives, I say we patiently endure it with them. Now there comes a time where there must be a sort of reckoning for the life that we live, where it affects the church, it affects that person, and there's no spiritual, positive spiritual growth. But until that time, we give them the benefit of the doubt and we try to help them along the way. What usually happens in most churches is most churches are really good at pointing out what's wrong instead of finding and helping in the solution. Most of us would probably find ourselves as guilty of criticizing or critiquing someone who has gone off the track while we offer little to no assistance to help them get back on the right track. It is not your job to point out where people are wrong. It is the Bible's job to point out where people are wrong. It is our job to help them understand what right is and where to get to that point. So when we are trying to figure out how to judge, we should spend most of our energy helping people get back to the right path as opposed to telling others where they are wrong. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Give people time and understanding. Everyone learns at a different pace. We need to look as we're trying to examine others' lives in the church and maybe, they're, maybe they're, um, they're struggling with a certain sin and we're like, this is not a sin in my life. You know, I don't, I don't understand it. We need to look for spiritual signs of growth as opposed to just how they're dealing with that specific sin. We need to like look for are there other areas of development in their life? Are there other areas of growth? This is bearing... With the failings of the week. Now, we obviously can, just can't let sin go unchecked in the church. But we also can leave room for things that are not so objectively sure. Like I challenged you last week, I would challenge you again. I would challenge you to put the most energy you have into judging the merits of your own life as opposed to judging the merits of others. If we're going to put energy into judging, it should be our own lives as opposed to others. Now, what are some examples of how this plays out? I think it plays out in how we serve the church. I've mentioned this a couple times, but this is one of the most prevalent problems in the church. This is the most prevalent issues of improper judgment in the church. If we serve, uh, it may be our first time to serve. If we serve, we look. We all of a sudden start looking around and trying to find out who else is not. Serving. If you can't serve without worrying about what other people are doing, then you're not doing it right. This plays out on matters of conscience. Matters of conscience. Should kids play organized sports? Should they drink Coke? Should they have sleepovers? Should they dye their hair? Should they have curly, girly, long hair like Stephen? Should they watch TV? What? What? These are matters of conscience. Should we get tattoos? Should you go to places that have food but are bars? Should should you attend concerts? Should you play poker? These are matters of conscience. These are just a few of the many matters of conscience. They are not sinful in and of themselves. So we're not going to be judges. We're not going to be judges on matters of conscience. If someone asks for your opinion, if someone asks for your help, by all means, give it to them. Give it to them with passion and fervent with a fervent nature as you have probably thought that out and studied that out and figured that out for your own family for your own family give them reasons why but you are not the final judge you are not the final executioner on matters of conscience ultimately we need to put more energy into determining those things for ourselves And to understanding, is my life leading to spiritual personal growth? Is my life edifying and building up the church? Something else Paul says about building an edification of the church. He says, be wise with Christian liberties. Not only judge our own lives, but we need to be wise with Christian liberties. Look at verses 14 and 15. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And I'm not. I, we know this, so I'm going to point to the last part of this verse, uh, verse 15, before I move on. But that is the ultimate goal as we examine other people's lives, is to remember that this is a person for whom Christ died. In every way that we interact with people. We need to understand that this is a person for whom Christ died. And so we need to have our response to people be framed in the idea that this is an image bearer of God. This person is important and has value because God created them. And He died for them. I think a great deal of energy should be used to determine... What we should do and what we should not do. What we should abstain from as it pertains to Christian liberties. Paul here is addressing the message to the stronger brother. This is not to the weaker brother in verses 14 and 15. He says, but you need to decide if it's worth it. Even if you are free to do something. Do you know how? I know it's not to the weaker brother and it's to the stronger brother. Because the weaker brother had no choice. He had already made his decision that he had no choice. He could not eat meat. He, could, he, he must celebrate the holy days. The stronger brother says, I could eat meat or I could not. I could celebrate this day as holy or that day as holy or I could not. So Paul is addressing the stronger brother and he says, You, on these matters of conscience, make sure that what you do is not a stumbling block or a hindrance to the weaker brother. Now we have determined in the previous text that nothing is unclean. We have determined it is the Christian's right to take certain liberties when it pertains to matters of conscience. But we now must determine, is it wise or helpful for us to take those certain liberties? Paul gives us one qualification that we can look at today, and others in Scripture, and we'll see them as they come along. But he says, if your brother is distressed by what you're doing, Paul goes through this entire dialogue on how it's acceptable to eat and it's acceptable to drink what you want. It's acceptable to celebrate this day as holy or not celebrate this this day as holy. And then he says in the start of chapter 14, verse 13 to 15, but should you? But should you? And I think that is the question we should ask ourselves today. It is okay, yes, but should I? Now let's see how this plays out in real life. I think it's perfectly biblical and okay to drink alcohol in moderation. I think it's okay to smoke cigars or a pipe. Because you can do those things in moderation. But the strongest argument that I've had against those things comes from this text. Now hear me. I don't think that this text prohibits the use of things like the things I just mentioned. But I do think it should give every Christian pause so that we can truly have a deep and real examination for ourselves. And then as we go back, we remember as we go back, we remember Paul says, be convinced of what you're doing and do that, I'll ask, wisely based on all that he has said in chapter 14 and 15. You cannot be concerned about the conscience of every Christian ever. And I think Paul is talking specifically to those in the body of Christ, in the church, and in your circle. If what you will do will cause someone to lose heart or be discouraged in the faith in your church or in your sphere of influence, then maybe you should consider if you should do it at all. So look at the matters of the conscience of conscience in your own life. Are they building up the church or are they bringing it down? Are your personal choices working to edify the body or are they bringing it down? We must decide and examine. We must take these things with a clear conscience and wisely, wisely exercise our liberties on matters of conscience. I will say that if you, if your decision, if you are clear with you and the Lord that it's okay to drink alcohol, I will say that it must be something you do wisely and with much consideration. I think you should consider where and when and objectively how much. We should consider the thoughts and the the conscience of other christians as it pertains to our own spiritual liberties because what we do affects other people both positively and negatively yes, and i will say this too just doing it privately doesn't make it doing doesn't make doing it wisely We can do it privately and still in an unwise manner. Are your personal choices working to edify the body? I think it's at this point we have to ask ourselves this question. Do the strong in faith have to forego anything about which some weaker believer might object? And my answer I think you'll find in this last point. Do not allow personal pleasure to override personal responsibility. Do not allow personal pleasure to override personal responsibility. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Paul says at the end of Romans that everyone will give an account of himself unto God. And blessed is the man who is not condemned for what he approves. All of this... Excuse me, we must consider all of this. It must be considered as we try to work through matters of conscience. Can we find middle ground? Yes. Should we try to find middle ground? Yes. Will we be able to find middle ground on every answer? I say no. There's going to be times where something is clear for you and it won't be clear for others. And that will be okay. There will be times where someone abstains from something and you don't abstain from that. And it's not an objective. There's not an objective standard for that in the Bible. And it must be okay, Because at this point, we're not just partaking to partake. We're partaking with others in mind. We're partaking with how it affects others as we partake. So we're doing it in a gracious and kind and loving and wise way. Should we try to find middle ground? Absolutely. But if we tried to find middle ground on everything for every believer, it would drive us crazy and likely lead to legalism. If we tried to find middle ground, if, we tried to, if I tried to agree with every matter of conscience for you, it would likely lead me to be the most legalistic person in the room and it would likely drive me crazy. And that's not how I'm going to live. It's not how I want to live. But also... I have to live in a manner to know that every decision I make for my life doesn't just affect my life. It affects at least the lives of the ones I'm rearing in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And it affects those who see me as an example. So how then do we operate? How do we operate where we're not walking on eggshells, but we're also not stepping on throats? I think we understand That there are matters of conscience that we must make our own way on and stick to, knowing that everyone will not agree. But there are others that are more personally neutral that we can relent on for the sake of the body of Christ. Just because we can, doesn't mean we should. Selfish and prideful behavior is is when we say, I'm free to do this and I must exercise this and every other freedom. In Acts fifteen, there was a discussion on Gentile liberty and what freedoms they had. Now, remember the Gentiles. Paul has already clearly stated in Romans they are free to do what they want to do. They're free to eat. They're free to drink. But at the end of Acts fifteen, they come to a conclusion on matters of conscience. At the end of Acts fifteen, or the middle of Acts fifteen, Acts fifteen nineteen through twenty one, uh, they say. Listen to this. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted to idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, you might not see how that pertains to what we're talking about today, but here's how it pertains. When trying to understand how the Gentiles should use their Christian liberties, the result, the the conclusion of the elders of the church of the time was that three out of the four rules that they were going to give Gentiles were concessions to Jews. Three out of the four rules, three out of the four things that they were going to encourage the Gentiles to do were concessions for the Jewish conscience. These were matters now sexual immorality is not a matter of Christian liberty, but the other three were matters of Christian liberty. And yet the conclusion that some of the wisest men to ever, to ever exist came to was that on these matters of Christian liberty, it's better that we consent, that we relent, excuse me, to the Gentiles, or uh, the Jews, than to continue to push these issues. Can I do it? Yes. Is it okay to do it? Probably. Should I do it? Maybe. Maybe not. Do not let, Paul says, what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. Can you withhold on your liberty for the sake of the church? For the building up of the body? We need to spend most of our time judging what we should and shouldn't do as opposed to what others do. Just because we're free to do something doesn't mean we should do something. Everything that we do affects the body of Christ, the local body and the larger body as a whole. Everything that we do. We live in this me centered, man centered, personal centered world. Everybody is an individual, everybody thinks they're so unique. It's just not true. It's just not, you're not unique. I know that your mom and dad told you that when you were growing up, but you're not unique. We're all very similar. We all basically need the same things. We foundationally need the same things. You're unique in the sense that God created you. You're unique in the sense that you are made in His image. But you are not uniquely different than every single other person. The the world does not need more individualism. We need more unity. Unity. We need more uh, unity in the body of Christ especially. And to understand that everything that we do affects the body of Christ. Pray with me today. Father God, you are holy. You are good. And we are yours. And although we don't understand your holiness and your goodness fully, we don't understand how we could be yours. Because even though we were sinners, you still died for us. We still, Lord, we relish in the fact that you have died for us. You live for us today. So that we can have eternal life. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we know that God, that God through Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him, That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised us from the dead, we will be saved. Lord, help us as the church never take for granted our salvation, but always use every opportunity we can for the building up of our own spiritual life, but for the edification, the building up of the church. We praise you because you are good. We praise you because you are holy. You are infinitely better. Your your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. We will never understand, Lord, but we trust you. We give our lives to you as a living sacrifice. Lord, would you help us to also give our lives to the church, to the body? We need each other. I need these people for spiritual growth just as much as they need me. I need these people for edification just as much as they need me. We can't do this alone. We must consider that as we choose the things that we choose to follow in our lives. We love you. We bless you. We pray that you would bless this day. Bless the work of our hands that it would honor and glorify your name to be an offering to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.